Well, good morning, friends. As you make your way back to your seats, why don't you look at your neighbor and say, shouldn't have bet on the Bengals last week. <clears throat> shouldn't have bet. Guys, I don't sports bet, okay? It was a joke. It was just, it was to get your attention. It is good to be with you. My name is Pastor Jonathan Swindle, and I'm the worship and executive pastor for, doesn't look like we have too many guests, but if there are any, uh, our senior pastors, Jade and Christy Duncan, took a, a vacation weekend to celebrate their 20-year anniversary. They were, yeah, so there, it was actually six months ago, but they were, they were on sabbatical with the four kids, and you can't celebrate an anniversary, especially a significant one like that, with the four kids, as wonderful as their kids are. But you know what I'm saying. So we bless them while they're away uh, on this weekend, and guys, you're stuck with me. And I have a couple of, I have a couple of disclaimers here. Um, truth be told, I feel a lot better than I did first service. This is, this message, I'm not going to lie to you, is very challenging. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, it's similar, it's challenging in a similar way as God is slow to anger was a challenging message. And Pastor Jade warned you at the beginning of his, and I'm warning you at the beginning of mine. And here, here's, here's our good faith agreement this morning. If you will stick with me to the end, I promise you the last five minutes is going to be the best news you've ever heard in your life. Okay? And it's no secret, it is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but... There are going to be some, some things today that might challenge and, and rub up against some of our tightly held beliefs. We're in the middle of a series and toward the end of the first third of our series on a series called Who is God? I love the graphic. Lauren, can we just show the graphic? I think it's so cool. Who is God? And the series is broken up into thirds. Any guesses on what the three thirds might be? God the Father, Christ the Son, and... The Holy Ghost, y'all. The Holy Ghost, not the Holy Spirit. No, we actually had a funny debate about that in staff meeting this week. Who says Holy Spirit and who says Holy Ghost? And y'all know your Pastor Jade says Holy Ghost. So we're going to say Holy Ghost. But today, we are going to be speaking about God as faithful. The faithfulness of God. And I'll tell you right up front. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach you my message in 30 seconds. And tell you why this message is a little bit difficult. Number one, we believe that God is faithful, meaning that, that God is reliable, that he is dependable, that he is trustworthy. But we also know that we only experience that faithfulness in part. That every one of us will have seasons, moments of our lives where it doesn't seem that God is being faithful to us. What we do know is that God has fully displayed his faithfulness in the life of Jesus Christ. And then here is the good news. I'm preaching the whole sermon right now, and then I'm going to unpack it. Then here's the end, what I'm going to tell you, the best news you've ever heard. That when in the end we finally see the fullness of the faithfulness of God, it will be better than we could have ever asked or imagined. That is the whole of this message. So God is faithful. We're going to turn to Exodus 34 and read the verses that we've been reading every week. This, this section of the series, this first third, God the Father, who is God the Father, we have chosen to draw from Exodus chapter 34, where God is revealing to Moses and his people 
his character. They've seen some of the displays of God's power, and we're going to read about some of those here in just a second. But here in Exodus 34, it says that God walks before Moses and says in verse 6, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So we have chosen to preach this part of the series from these verses. And here's why today's message matters so much. Because it's really, really easy to be compassionate for like an hour. (laughs) That actually is kind of a stretch for five minutes. It's really easy to be slow to anger with people you feel sorry for. It's really easy to be loving to people who love you back. But the reason that faithfulness is so important is because it assumes that everything that precedes faithfulness, compassion, grace, being slow to anger, being abounding in love, what this implies is that by saying God is faithful, it's saying God doesn't pick and choose when he is those things. That God is the one who has both the character and the ability to follow through on all of those characteristics. Now remember, in this time, Moses and the people of God are held in captivity in Egypt. And we don't use the word God or gods very often in our society unless we're speaking about what is largely, widely assumed to be the Judeo-Christian God. If you go into your workplace and you start talking about God, people are automatically going to assume you're either Jewish or you're a Christian. And this time, it was not that way. Everyone believed in gods. It was just which God or which gods do you believe in and to which are you referring at this moment? The rain God, the war God, the word of the the God of um, offspring, which God, the God of the harvest, the corn God, the wheat God, what are you talking about? So God, Yahweh, who we are talking about when we say God, is trying to reveal himself in a way that distinguishes himself from all of these other lowercase G gods that the people would have been familiar with. And he reveals himself first by displaying his power, but then by telling what kind of God he is who utilizes that power. I'm the God who is compassionate. I am gracious. I'm slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So what is this word faithfulness? This word faithfulness means in Hebrew, it is the word emet, it actually means truth or to trust, to have faith if used as a verb. It can mean, one way of thinking about it is that God is full of truth. But truth can be a deceptive word to us because in common society now, here in the 21st, what's, are we in the 21st century? Yeah, we're in the 21st, 22nd century, just like the Jetsons. We're always moving forward, and I don't know where we're at. But for tr- truth for us tends to refer to something that is really static and very black or white, like the accuracy of facts. Two, or, two plus two is four, and that's non-negotiable, right? And it's very easy to discern because 
I can pull four of these up and separate them into two groups of two and prove to you that two plus two equals four. But God being true is more in the sense that architects might say a line is true. And it takes into account relationship. And it's contextual. And what I'm not saying is that, is that your truth is, is perfect truth and, and it's subjective and there is no objective truth. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God's truth expresses itself in the context of relationship. Here, here's an example. Let me give you a verse. In Exodus, a little earlier than what we just read, God is telling Moses how to find people to help him govern the people of Israel. And he says this, Select capable men from all the people, men who fear God. And here's our word for faithfulness. Here's the word emmet. Trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. And the verse keeps going, but I, I want to pause here. Trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain requires wisdom and discernment to know whether the gain was honest or not. It's not always real black and white. We live in a world with muddy waters where the lines are not always super clear. And God tells Moses, go find men who are full of discernment, that they are true in the sense that they know the character and the heart of God. They know what God wants, and they're able to discern that in the context of relationship. That's the kind of trustworthiness that our God is. God is trustworthy, he is truth itself. And his truth is expressed and manifested in relationships with the created order, with creatures like you and me, human beings. This is what we mean when we say God is faithful. We mean, number one, that he does what he says he'll do. God is faithful, and therefore he does what he says he will do. And also, second, he is always consistent within his character past, present, and future. We might say God never changes. And to say that God never changes means that who he was before there was any creation at all is who he is right now, is who he is that was revealed in Christ Jesus when Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, and it's who God will be for all of eternity. When we die and we are present with the Lord, God will be the same as the scriptures say, yesterday, today, and forever. There's no bait and switch with God. That's one of the things God is revealing here to Moses. He's revealing his consistency, that he doesn't pick and choose when he's going to be the compassionate God or when he's going to be angry God. No, 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 no. That's not how our God works. What he does flows directly from his character. And his character can never change. Therefore, we can know and assume that everything that God does is flowing from what is revealed, that he is the compassionate and gracious God, the one who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, the one who, as Pastor Jade will speak on next week, will forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin. And here's the thing. This trust that this faithfulness of God demands of us is not a blind trust. It's not a trust that says, trust me or I'll smite you and kill you along with everyone else. No, no. The way that our God works, and he's always worked this way, 
is God first reveals something about himself and then invites us to participate, invites us to lean on it, invites us to follow. God says, here's a, here's a sign, here's a display of my power. Now, why don't you follow me for a little bit? He proves his trustworthiness. So just go with me here. Throughout the book of Exodus alone, because we're talking about Moses, I just did a little case study during the week, and I, I wanted to see how God proves himself to Moses, because he doesn't just say, follow me or I'll smite you, like I said. He invites Moses to follow him and to work with him after he has revealed himself and proven his character. So, God shows up to Moses in a burning bush that is not consumed. Now, I, I don't know about you. I can't even really wrap my head around that. The bush is burning, but it's never consumed. Anything that you and I light on fire eventually is going to turn to ash and disintegrate. And then it's going to blow away, and it will no longer be there. This bush is burning, but is not being consumed. This is already unique, and Moses right away recognizes something is going on here. And he takes his shoes off, and he recognizes he's on holy ground. So then God invites him and says, my people have been in bondage for far too long, and I'm not okay with it. And I'm going to deliver my people, Moses, and I want to use you. I want to work with you. And he invites him, come be my spokesperson, and we're going to go to Pharaoh together. So he reveals something about himself, and he calls and invites Moses to follow. Then in the very next chapter, Moses is already having second thoughts. He's a little nervous, like, Pharaoh's kind of a powerful guy, right? So God says, what is that you have in your hand? Well, I have a staff in my hand. And he th says, throw it down. So Moses throws his staff down, and he picks it back, or he throws it down, and it turns into a snake. And then God says, pick it back up, and he picks it back up, and it turns into a staff. Once again, God is revealing to him that not only does he have the character that he has displayed, but he has the power and the ability to follow through on that character. Our God is the God who can throw a staff, can tell someone to throw a staff down, and it'll turn into a snake. And then he picks it back up, and it turns back into a staff. And amongst other things, he's revealing to Moses, I'm not just out there. I'm right here when you need me. I'm as close as the staff. When you take the staff, when you approach Pharaoh, take the staff with you. This is as close as I will be with you. The next thing, the plagues. We've all heard the stories of the plagues. He says, now go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And if you don't, I'm going to do this. And there are 10 thises. And every time Pharaoh says no, he says, okay, I told you there'd be locusts. Here come the locusts. And God follows through. Then he says, tell him to let my people go. Nope, not letting your people go. Okay, tell them there's going to be frogs. You're like, frogs? This is the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. Sure enough, two trillion frogs show up in the palace of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, get these frogs out of here. He does it again. He does this over and over again, 10 times. 10 times. God says, let my people go or else. And whatever God said the or else was happened. Once again, we see God following through, saying something and following through on his actions. Then they, Pharaoh finally lets them go, and they get to the Red Sea, and we know the story there. God parts the Red Sea. The people of Israel walk through on dry land, and as the Egyptians come behind, the waters close and smite the Egyptians. 
Then they get out into the wilderness and they're like, well, thanks God, now we're thirsty and we're in a desert. So the first water they find is a bitter pond. Like, thanks God, we can't drink from this or we'll die. And God says, Moses, do you see this stick over here? This piece of wood? Go pick that wood up and throw it into the water. So he throws it into the water, and the stick purifies the water. Like, what in the world? These are the most random things ever. Just like on the heels of these ten plagues and a parting sea, what is happening? God is speaking something and following through to show Moses over and over and over again, you can trust me. I'm trustworthy. I'm faithful. And it keeps going, and for the sake of time, I'm going to skip it. But you should read the whole book of Exodus. It's like constantly God is saying, I'm going to do something. And then he follows through with a divine work of power, something miraculous, a sign and a wonder. With each one of these displays of power, God is saying what he's going to do and following through. And he's revealing to Moses that he has both the ability and the character to follow through on his promises. Here's the thing. You and I, all the good Bible-believing Christians in the room, know these things to be true about God. That God never changes, that he has all power in his hands, that he is love and goodness at his core and his essence. And God can do whatever he wants all the time, except build a rock that's too big for him to move and all those other weird philosophical things that people talk about in college. We know all these things about, thank you, Seth, for laughing at my stupid joke. But then we have our experiences over here on the other side of the spectrum. And every one of us, if you live long enough with God, will have some kind of experience where you're scratching your head going, God, I know this to be true about you, but what I'm experiencing right here sure doesn't seem to line up with that. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but if you live with the Lord long enough, you will have at least one of those moments. You will have the moments where our experience, where your experience doesn't seem to match up with the faithfulness of God. Then to further complicate things, we have our expectations in the mix. So we have this spectrum of what we know to be true about God and our lived experience. And then somewhere in the middle is what we expect God to do in any given circumstance, just to make things even more complicated. And in this sermon, there is no way that I could say it all as if there was something to be said to make it all better anyways. But I want you to hear this. This is what Martin Luther said. He said, if all we had to go on was our experience of the world we live in, we would have to conclude one of two things, that God is either evil or God doesn't exist. This is not a new argument. I mean, Christians and atheists and philosophers have been having these kinds of conversations for literally over 2,000 years. This is not something that I'm going to say anything so profound that's going to blow your mind this morning. That's not what's going to happen. But I do want to parse and nuance some of the things that we actually mean when we say that God is faithful. And then I want to do my best to try and expose some of the lies of the enemy that are twisting and misguiding and misinterpreting and misappropriating things in the scripture that we hold on to 
that actually end up getting us in trouble, leading us right to disappointment or disillusionment with God. So, we know that God never changes, but what do we mean when we say these things? Or when we sing these things? There's actually a lot of lingo around the faithfulness of God in our songs that we rarely expound upon. Things like, God never fails, or you've never failed me yet, or perhaps the more complicated one, you're never going to let me down. Well, how are we to say these things or sing these things, or should we say these things or sing these things? And what do we mean when our experiences just seem to be nowhere near what we're seeing revealed about the faithfulness of God in Scripture? Well, I'm glad you asked. I do believe, now before I tell you what I think we can stand on, I do want to say, and this is really important, that I think one of the tools of the enemy that he uses most, and there are certain words for the enemy that are interpreted best the deceiver in Scripture. That much of what the enemy does in our lives, the devil, Satan, whatever you want to, to call the enemy, Much of what he does isn't fabricate things out of thin air and try and get us to believe them. Most of us know the Bible well enough, know our story well enough to be able to call those things out and go, that's not true. But one of his slick tactics as a deceiver is to get us to believe things that are true, but to hold to them in the wrong way. To hear things that God actually did say but to hold them in a way that that's not really what God meant. Because when we do that, it always ultimately ends in disappointment and our disillusionment, which ends up distancing us from God. And what does the enemy want more than anything? For us to turn our back and distance ourselves from God. So here, I think, are some misunderstandings or misinterpretations of Scripture around the faithfulness of God. Now, some of these, you're going to go, well, I've never thought that. That's silly. And some of them, you're going to go, ooh, I believe that. What's wrong about it? So I just want to tell you, not every one of these are going to hit every person, but every one of these I have personally come up against and touched, either in my own life or in the lives of people that I'm close to. The first one is that God will show up in the same way for every circumstance. So here's what I mean. This this is a misunderstanding. There was this time where I had this need, and God came through in this way. Therefore, the next time I have that need, God's going to show up the same way. Because he's consistent, isn't he? If you've lived with God long enough, you know that that is not true. That there are sometimes God shows up and breaks in and does something miraculous. And then 20 years later, you might be in a similar circumstance. And God might not show up that way. That's the first. The second, that God will meet all of my expectations. Okay, now on the surface, that sounds really silly. We know that God's not going to meet all of our expectations. But in the moments that we are pressed the hardest, those proverbial between a rock and a hard place moments... What comes out of us is disappointment that God is not doing what we think he should do in that moment. And what is that if it's not God not meeting our expectations? Once again, we know deep down that God's not going to meet all of our expectations. In the end, we will see that he's better. 
But in the moment of experience, when we're in real time in a situation, God is not always going to meet your expectations. Number three, this is the one that I had the hardest time with. When I live right, bad things will happen, but the worst things will never happen to me. We know because it happened to Jesus, and we know because Jesus said it, that in this life you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And a lot of Christians, what they take that to mean is that we'll have bumps in the road, but they won't be that serious. We'll have financial hardship, but it'll never get to bankruptcy. We'll have marital hardship, but it'll never get to divorce. We'll have sickness, but it'll never end in death. And guys, I, I'm, I'm speaking to you from someone who has learned this lesson the hardest way possible. And I'll, I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And many of you have been in similar situations. Many of you have had these kinds of ideas manifest and then realize, I, I, can't, I can't lean on this or there's something twisted in this. I know God is faithful, but I might be believing that the wrong way. Here's another one. Everything that happens must be what God wanted to happen. We've all been in situations either our own or with other people and terrible, clearly evil things happen. And they go, well, God must have wanted to use it to teach me a lesson. No, guys, God doesn't need evil to do anything. God is not sadistic, pushing us with evil just so that we'll run to his goodness. That's not how God works. God doesn't need evil for anything. God has no need at all. God has no need at all. So this is another one of these misunderstandings that even the terrible things that happen in our lives, God must have wanted to happen to teach us something. It's not true. It's a misunderstanding. And then lastly, that we will see the fulfillment of every promise God has made to us. This is a misunderstanding that we believe that everything God has said to us is going to be fulfilled in our lifetime. And if you've read the book of Hebrews, you know that that is not true. We're going to talk about that in just a second. So if all these things are not true, or they're kind of true, but not true all the way, then what can we lean on? What do we actually mean when we say God is faithful? When we say God is dependable, that he is trustworthy, what do we mean? Okay, so Pastor Jay got to nerd out a couple of weeks ago, so I'm going to nerd out for like, three minutes, okay? So we're going to nerd out together, and then I'm going to preach, and we're going to come to the table, all right? And that's all going to happen in about 15 to 20 minutes. We mean two things primarily, and I'm going to use big words, and then I'm going to use very simple sentences to explain what they are. So if you don't know what the words mean, don't go, oh my gosh, here we go again. This is a lecture. No, it's not a lecture. I promise I'm going to make it tolerable and palatable for you. Number one, we mean that God is eschatologically faithful. Eschatology is the theological word that means in the end. It speaks about the last things. It speaks about when Christ returns and makes all things new, God will be proven faithful. Here's what I mean. In the end, all of God's promises will be fulfilled and experienced by those who are in Christ which means everything wrong will be made right and God's rule and his will will be. Now, that is good news. That's good news. Is it, up on, it is up on the screen. Okay. If you want to write it down, you can. But I, I really, I want you to get this. 
that when we speak to the faithfulness of God, we mean that in the end, it will be most likely after our lifetime. It is possible that Christ will return very, very soon. But I will just tell you, Paul thought Jesus was returning during his lifetime. And here we are. So it is possible. I'm not saying it won't happen. But there's a good chance we will be dead and present with Christ in a different way. And then sometime in the future, Christ will return and restore everything and bring about the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation. And when that happens, we will see the fullness of God's faithfulness. And everything that God ever said throughout history will be made true. Here's a verse for that, 2 Timothy 1.12. Paul says, that is why I am suffering as I am. This is no cause for shame, but I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced, some of your Bibles say persuaded, that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Well, what is that day? That day is the future day of the coming of the Lord. And Paul's saying, I can suffer these things now, Because I trust and believe that in the end, even if it happens after my death, that it's going to be worth it because I believe God is who he says he is more than I believe what I see in my present circumstances. That is what we mean when we say God is eschatologically faithful. Number two, we say that God is providentially faithful. Now, we've all heard the word providence, and it you know, it means something around having control or being sovereign or being over and being at work in. Here's what we mean. God is providentially faithful, meaning in the meantime. So between now and the end, in the meantime, God will sustain us within, not keep us from the ups and the downs, the trials and the tribulations, pain, suffering, and even possible persecution. God will sustain us, meaning no matter what happens to you, you're still held in the hands of God. Hard things will happen. Difficult, evil, bad things will happen. Why? Well, there's lots of reasons, the least of which is because you and I make a real impact on one another. You and I have what's called human agency, And we can really do things that harm one another. It's not a facade. It's real. But what we trust is that we are held in God's hands until what we talked about a minute ago, the end, the eschaton, when Christ comes and returns and makes all things new. A couple of verses. Philippians 1.6, Paul says again, being confident of this. What is he confident in? that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, he says this, he will also keep you firm to the end. He doesn't say he will keep bad things from happening to you. He says he will hold you firm. He will keep you firm through it all so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you've stuck with me this long, you're going to be okay. Everyone take a big sigh or a a big breath and let out a sigh of relief. You're going to be okay. Guys, I promise you the end of this message is the best news possible. But there are too many people who grew up in churches that either A, didn't talk about these things, 
or B, brought them up and were hushed or given really trite answers or responses that didn't do anything, which is why we see so many people walking away from the faith or deconstructing is the popular word, their faith over things that there are actually good responses to. Now, I'm not saying every person who's walking away doesn't know what I'm telling you this morning. That's not what I'm saying. But we have to be the kind of people who can acknowledge these are the things that we believe to be true, and this is our experience. And we're not shying away from either one of them. We're not turning and putting our head in the sand of either, in either direction. We're saying, God, we trust you, and we also trust that you're not scared of our honesty. And I, I've said this before. This is, guys, I'm, you should be scared. I'm going off my notes, okay? <clears throat> but when God chose to name his people, he didn't name them after Abraham. He didn't name them the people of faith or the people of great love or the people of great power, the people of great works. He named them the people of Israel. You know what the word Israel means? One who wrestles with God. God is not afraid of your honesty. What God wants least is for you to hold these tensions and act like they don't exist. For you to hold these disappointments and these struggles and to never bring them to him and be scared to talk about them. Because what will happen over time is you will die on the inside. That the distance between you and God on the inside separates and separates and separates until at some point in the future, you just don't care anymore. God isn't who he says he is. <laughs> Look at these things. He can't be. But what I'm telling you from experience is that what God wants more than anything is you to be brutally honest, but bring them to him. Say, God, I don't know how to reconcile these things. I believe, but just like in Mark 9, I believe, but there's still some unbelief. Help me. God, I'm bringing this to you. I'm so, I know that you're the only one who could do anything about this. I do believe in part, but God, there, there's still this, this messiness on the inside. God, help my unbelief. And when we bring it to him, there's just there's something that happens when we are honest with the one who is the only one who can do anything about it. I'm not going to solve any of these problems for you. God is the only one who can bring a peace and a grace and the, the, to get real spiritual language, religious language, the, the oil of anointing to massage these things into the core of our being. God is the only one who can do anything about it. So, in the meantime, in the tension, what are we to do? There are three things I, I want to say this morning that I am fully convinced are true. That they're not, they're not going to alleviate the tension, but they can help us wrap our minds around this, the gap, the chasm between what we know to be true about God and what we experience in the world. And I think they're really helpful for providing perspective for us. The first is, number one, we don't see clearly all that God is doing. In other words, don't trust your interpretation of circumstances too much. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. In other words, it's like 
I just came in. I'm, I'm still in my 30s, so I don't have transition lenses. But for those who have transition lenses, that was supposed to be a joke. My mom was here first service, and she has them. So it's like you're outside and transition lenses, and your toddler's been playing with your glasses, so they have fingerprints, but then they're dark. And you walk into a building, and someone hands you a really important contract, and they say, we need you to read this and sign it immediately. And you put your glasses on, you're like, First of all, they're dark. Second of all, they're smudged. Third of all, it's eight-point font. I can't read this. This is kind of like what Paul is saying. He's like, you can tell it's paper in front of you and that it's English, but you can't read it. You can't understand what it says. This This is our life of faith. It's not that we can't see anything. No, we do see. We can sense God is God is at work here. God is doing something here. I, I just can't exactly put my finger on it. Or over here, man, there are some weird, terrible things happening. And I can't, I can't name it, but I have enough discernment to know this is not of God. We, we can know that. But we're looking through transition smudged glasses and we're trying to read six-point font. That's what this walk of faith is like. Hebrews chapter 11, this is a famous passage that if you've been a believer a long time, you will know that the hall of faith is what this chapter is called. So the author of the book of Hebrews walks through this long lineage of Jewish mothers and fathers in the faith who received promises from God, but they didn't see the full fulfillment of their promises. And this is what he says, or or she, could have been a she actually. These were all commended for their faith. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, all the people. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Like, think about that. These people, before Christ had come, trusted and saw enough to trust God even when they're on their deathbed and they haven't seen the fulfillment of what God told them was going to happen. None of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Here is something I had never thought about until this week. Right in the middle of this verse, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Think about that. Abraham lives thousands of years before Christ had come. And Abraham held true to the faith, and he stewarded the promise that God gave him, even though he saw but a glimpse of what it meant. And you might say, well, God, why didn't you just fulfill it all? The author of the book of Hebrews says, because it's too big. God's promises are too grand. They're too big. They're too beautiful. God needs all, God doesn't need. God wants all of us. Yeah, correct myself there. God wants all of us and is inviting all of us into the story because his promises are just that good and just that big. And here's what I had never thought about. That part I had thought about. Here's what I had not thought about. There is the end of this verse about the great cloud of witnesses, right? What I have always imagined, and this is true, by the way, is that all the saints gone before us are present with Christ in some way, right? And they're cheering us on, and they're interceding for us. 
as we are working out, as we are enfleshing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, working toward the ultimate fulfillment of all God's promises. Here's what I had not considered. One day, I will be gone. And the promises that God has given to me, the promises that God has given to you, we won't see the fulfillment of all of those things. And we will pass, and we will join the great cloud of witnesses. And we will be cheering on those two, three, four, five, six generations on. And we will be cheering them on, watching the promises of God unfold in their lives in ways that we never thought were even imaginable. We didn't even know it was possible. That's what the saints are watching right now in part. And then one day, it's all going to be fulfilled. So first point, we don't see clearly all that God is doing. Number two, this is implied, but God is not done working yet. God is still working. You know how we know? Because there's still evil all around us. There's still sin and death present all around us. And sometimes we, the new creation, even slip into participating with sin and participating in things that bring death to other people. God is still at work. He's not done working yet. Here is this verse. Now, I want to make a statement, and this might be the most provocative thing I could say all day, but it's good news. That you and I trust God in part because we have seen God prove himself faithful to us throughout our lives. That is true, but that's not enough. The only place in human history where God has fully done all that God can do is in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus was dead. He died a real death. He wasn't playing dead like a possum in the tomb, waited for the stone to roll, and then goes, thank God, now I can move around. And man, that, that was close, Father and Spirit. No, no, no. Jesus was actually dead. And Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. The Father, through the power of the Spirit, raised him from the dead. And that is the only time in human history that God has fully acted. The full weight of God's power happened on Jesus, and it brought him through the worst thing that any human could ever go through, which is death. And you know why that's good news for you and me? Because Jesus right now is the first fruits of what is happening in the end, to all of us. So we do trust our experiences a little bit. But when they don't line up with Christ, we look to Jesus. Here's how the author of Hebrews says it. Hebrews 2. I know this is, this is not a normal way of thinking, but guys, this, this can revolutionize everything. Listen to this. The author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8, this beginning line here. You gave them, speaking about humanity in God, authority over all things. That's in quotes. Now, when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. Not most things, all things. But we have not seen all things put under their authority. In other words, that promise has not been fully fulfilled yet. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angel's. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. What am I saying? 
we don't yet see the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. What we do see is Jesus, in whom God's work is fully complete. Think about this. There is nothing left for God to do for Jesus. Jesus is alive in his glorified body, seated at the right hand of the Father. God has fully acted and worked in the life of Jesus. And what you and I believe as Christians is that in this life, God is faithful, and we experience that in part. That doesn't change the faithfulness of God. It speaks to our human experience. But there is coming a day when what has happened to Jesus is going to happen to all of us. And when that happens, point number three is true. When God has done all that God is going to do, it will be better than we could have ever asked or imagined. That is the best news. That when we're pressed between a rock and a hard place, when something tragic happens, when you lose a loved one, when a marriage falls apart, when you go into bankruptcy, when you see your dream die, when it looks like the finality of anything in your life, here's what we are believing. That we don't see clearly, that God is still working, and that in the end, when God has done all that God is going to do, it'll be more than we could have ever imagined to pray for. Brian, if you would come, we're going to get ready to come to the table. I want to read that verse from Ephesians 3.20. The context of, I'm going to read the verse and then I'll tell you the context. Paul says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. What Paul is saying that on the heels of is after telling the Jewish people and the Gentile people that God is doing something that is reconciling them to one another. Now, the story from the beginning had always been to the Jewish people that you are called out to be a blessing to the whole world. God said that to Abraham in the very, 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 very beginning. God said that to Abraham. I'm blessing you and calling you out that all the nations of the earth might be blessed through you. But over time, the Israelite people are disillusioned. They're disappointed. They go through periods of slavery, period of exile, period of silence. And they come to the time of Christ, and they're lucky to have any hope at all. They're lucky to still believe any of it because it just seems like all of God's promises, like what? Like, look at our history. Look at all that we've gone through. Are you kidding me? How can this be true? And then comes Christ. And Jesus comes and gives us life. And most people didn't recognize him as the Messiah until after the fact. And then Paul is here writing to all of these churches. And Paul, writing specifically in Ephesians chapter 3, tells them, guys, this message is better than you could have ever asked or imagined. And speaking to the Gentiles, guys, this wasn't just for the Jewish people. The Jewish people were there all along to be an example to what God is going to do through them for everyone. So God is doing this on behalf of everyone to a people who don't believe he can or would do it. And that's when Paul says, no, I know that you didn't think it was possible, 
I know that any hope of this happening had probably died as a dream long, long ago. But God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. That means that the wildest prayers you and I have ever prayed are not nearly expansive enough for what God wants to actually do in the end. That our imagination cannot even comprehend. Like we come in and we sing songs about the goodness of God, about the power of God, about the love of God. And our language just like barely scratches the surface. We're like a kid playing in a kiddie pool and God is like an ocean that is bottomless. Let's stand together as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. I was thinking this message, most of these messages are not very practical messages, which is okay. These kinds of messages are really important for helping us to wrestle with, God, what do we do in these moments of difficulty and pain? And some of these are the most important kinds of messages because they don't touch our hands as much as they touch our lenses, how we see God, how we see the world. But here's what I want to say. I I was wrestling because I've been in this place. I mean, we we lost our, our firstborn child seven years ago. And I was one of those who believed that God was going to let bad things happen, but never the worst things, never the most tragic things. Those, for those who are in Christ Jesus, those kinds of things don't actually happen. And I was proved wrong. And I was thinking, what are some handholds that I can give, that I could share, that I learned that saved my life, saved my faith? And the first is pray honestly. Like, guys, God doesn't want your cuteness. God doesn't want you insulating yourself from him thinking he can't handle it. He's the only one who can handle it. He's the only one who can handle you saying, there's this gap. I mean, there there are some human beings that can handle that, mature, wise, discerning people. But God is not scared of it. Pray honestly. And the second is do not isolate yourself. Be close to the people of God. When you're wrestling, you you tend to feel inadequate, like I'm, I'm lacking in faith. That's the time when you need to press in and you need to be around people who can have faith for you, people who can carry you. And then the last thing is we have these very tangible practices. You might come up here week after week and you might not feel a whole lot, One of the reasons Jesus gave us the sacraments, holy baptism, holy communion, was because we're like, at the end of the day, made of dust. And ideas about God sometimes are not enough. We need to be tethered to practical things, to be reminded when we touch this in our hands, oh yeah, I I couldn't feel God this morning, but I can feel this. And I can eat it, and I can swallow it, and it's a reminder. Jesus knew it would be hard. God knows it's hard. That's why he gave us the scriptures. That's why he gives us one another. And that's why we have the testimony and the witness of Jesus Christ. So if you would, this morning, please exit out the left side of your pew, your aisle. Come forward, receive the elements, and then we will partake together in just a moment.
maybe should have said this in the beginning, but <clears throat> this is kind of one of those messages that's not going to hit everyone today in a particularly positive way. Some of you might be on a mountaintop with the Lord right now, and that is okay, and I bless that. But two things. One, if you walk with the Lord long enough, there will be points where you'll be asking him lots of questions, where lots of things in life won't seem to line up. And this is a message I hope and pray for that day. And the other thing is that some of your friends, the people that God has called you to, are in this place. And you can learn how to be a safe person. You can learn to be the kind of person that can sit with them and not feel the need to fix it. Because you know why? You know that God is still working. You don't have to get it all fixed in that moment. I mean, you can't fix it anyways, but you can try and probably mess it up. I know I've done that. But when you have this kind of truth, understanding, you can sit with people and you can go, it's okay. I know they're frustrated. I know they're disappointed. I know they're disillusioned, but it's okay. They're in God's hands. They're not in my hands. They're not in your hands. This is not ours to carry. We're to hold one another's hands as God is carrying all of us. So with the bread in your hands, that was a lot of hands language, I know. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. and When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church is a tangible manifestation of an inner working of grace. Let us receive this little wafer as the body of Christ broken for you and for me. And I had never seen this until today, but the Apostle Paul was a Southerner. You know how I know? He says in the same way after supper, he took the cup. Just a little levity for a very hard message, okay? After supper, Jesus took it, took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. This cup reminds us that there is a day coming where the fullness of God's promises will all be manifested and we will all experience it. And to that day, we drink this little cup together. Let us receive the blood of Christ shed for you and for me. Thanks be to God for these good gifts. Church, I hope that the last five minutes was encouraging and hopeful enough. But leave this place remembering this one thing. That whatever our experiences say, in the end, God will be better. God will be better. Let's sing the doxology. Ready, Brian? Praise Praise God from who? Blessings flow, praise Him, all creatures here below.
Amen. Lord, I pray a blessing over your people today, that wherever they are at, that they would see glimpses, that they would see signs that remind them that you are faithful and that you are who you say you are. Church, I pray a blessing over you that you would go in the fullness of the peace of Christ today, filled with the power of his spirit on witness and on mission with the Holy Spirit. Go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We'll see you guys.